are listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, today I am preaching from the subject of exiles. Um, this is an important teaching uh, role in the scripture and most of, let me just say, the second half of the Old Testament is really dominated by the fact that God's people have become exiles. This is not accidental, I don't believe. I believe that in this, in this status of being an exile, you are in a civilization, you are in a kingdom, you are in a nation, but you're not really of that kingdom. You are of a different kingdom. This is profoundly helpful in helping us understand what it means to be God's people in this world. What does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? And this perhaps today will be a little bit different, but that's a good thing. We don't want to do the same thing all the time. Uh, So my title is Exiles, and I want to try to show you something uh, powerful and profound in the word of the Lord. Will you help me for a few moments? All right, let's get started. If you want to read and understand the circumstance that the house of Israel found themselves in, uh, that we think of as the exile, that literally is uh, a title that is used by scholars and theologians and the like, to understand uh, a season in the house of Israel, very important teaching examples uh, in the word of the Lord, you're going to read about how in the scripture about how Israel, uh, Judah primarily and Jerusalem, their capital city was destroyed, how they were taken captives and they had to learn what it meant, what was involved, excuse me, let me adjust my mic here. Uh, what was involved in being God's people in a foreign, foreign land. Daniel and his friends, you will know them as the three Hebrew children. Everyone here, anyone ever hear the story of the three Hebrew children? Uh, you will know them uh, from reading these stories. And if you grew up going to Sunday school, you've had these stories acted out because some of the most visually powerful stories in all the Old Testament that are often taught to children uh, with image or cartoons or when I was growing up we had cutouts and you'd put them on a flannel board. Uh, These images are used to teach us something about what it means to be people of God in this world but not of this world. And so we are all of us challenged as people of faith not simply to survive this world but to influence this world. Now this image this idea, this lesson of Scripture is going to be recurrent. It's going to be presented to you over and over and over again. Uh, you will be reminded of places where you see someone like Jacob who is, he is fleeing for his life and in his sleep. Uh, as he is discovering his own covenant relationship with God, the image he is given is one of a kingdom above and a world beneath. And he, in that moment, perceives a ladder of spirit. 
spiritual connection between a kingdom above and a world beneath. And we all of us, if we have any spiritual sensitivity in our hearts, we understand that we live as spiritual ladders of connection that host ministry between a kingdom above and a world beneath. We have become those who through faith perceive and enable a ladder of ministry between a kingdom above and a world beneath. And what happens on this ladder? This is a bridge, a connection where the ministering spirits from the kingdom above ascend and descend upon this ladder. Thus, the kingdom that is above flows into the world that is beneath. This becomes the the teaching, the the understanding, the illustration, the story that gives us an idea of what our spiritual role is. And so in the story of the great exile in the house of Israel, you read of people like Daniel, you read of the three Hebrew children, you also read of Nehemiah, you read of Ezra. These are all individuals who are in another kingdom But they are not of that kingdom. They are of a different kingdom. And you look at Daniel and you see a person who is living between two kingdoms. This is important. We all all need to, if we can, perceive this. He is in a kingdom, but he's not of the kingdom. Even so, he is successful in both kingdoms. His job, his role uh, is not one of rebuking a world he is in, but in bearing the name of God in a world that he is in. Stay with me. We're going somewhere to go together. Um, we often, as believers, feel this spiritual tension between the life we live in the world and the person we're striving to be in the spirit. And if you don't feel that tension, you've either not perceived the world you're living in or you've not perceived the kingdom you're trying to be a part of. Because there is a real definite spiritual tension that exists between the world as it is and the kingdom of God that is manifest through you. And we look at Daniel and and we learn from this story and uh, Daniel is truly a part of two different realities and this is not accidental. This is biblically and spiritually intentional because we are doing exactly what he did. We are pilgrims and strangers. We are exiles in this world. We are in this world, but we are not, say it with me, of this world. Daniel has to do both. He has to have a foot in this world and a foot in this world, and it's not about spiritual rebellion. It's not about where his heart is. His heart is firmly focused and established in Yahweh's kingdom, do you see? But he finds himself in this kingdom. This is not a question of his allegiances. He will show you that when push comes to shove, he always will choose the kingdom of God, though it costs him his place, though it costs him his status, though it costs him his success. There is no doubt about his heart. The test of the kingdom is not his heart. His heart is fixed. The test of the kingdom is a test of influence. 
Can he be in this world and bear the name of God in this world while his heart belongs to another? And so this is shown literally in his name, spiritually and biblically. Names have powerful image, and, and Daniel is known by two names, and the Bible is not ashamed of either one of them. The Bible does not hide either one of them, as if the Bible is to say, Daniel has to bridge two kingdoms, and Daniel has to connect two worlds, and so one name Daniel has is the name we know him by, Daniel, which means Jehovah is my judge. He also has another name, Belshazzar, which is a name after the heathen deity, Bel. This is a strange reality. One part of us wants to condemn him. We want to say he's a compromiser. We want to say he cannot serve God and man. We want to judge him. And there are, in the Jewish tradition, those who judge him. In fact, his books are not honored among uh, Judaism in the same manner they're honored in Christianity because of this very problem. Can we be in the culture, influence the culture, be successful? Successful in the culture, have a good testimony in the culture, manifest the word of God in the culture, and bear the name of God in the culture, while all ha- all the while having a heart that is upon God, that is not of this world. This is the tension, the spiritual tension that is shown in the book of Daniel. He has two names. The Bible gives them both to us, and it's not just him. The three Hebrew children all have two names. They have to have influence in two different kingdoms further. It is a time of complexity. It is a time of social complexity. It is a time of um, civilization complexity. Uh, Daniel doesn't have a simple life. He doesn't get to just be, you know, in the desert eating locusts, knowing who he is and who God is. His life isn't so simple. He is in a time of great complexity. There are the moving tectonic plates of empire. There are changes in regime and changes in kingdom and empire. And he has to be a witness in all of them. He has to bear the name of God to all of them. He has to be successful in all of them in his life and ministry. Daniel will serve four different kingdoms and have place of high stature to four different kings. First, Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, Belshazzar. Thirdly, Darius. Fourthly, Sirius. Uh, uh, Cyrus, excuse me. And it's actually more complicated than this because Babylon does not spring fully formed upon uh, uh, life stage. Uh, You go back from Babylon and you find yourself at a place in the scripture, Genesis 11, where people are building a city and a tower called Babel. And in this place, they have come together in unity. They have organized themselves, and God pays them this compliment that uh, almost anything they could set their mind to do, and they would do it. And you find uh, in Babel, before Babylon, you find Genesis 11, chapter number four, chapter, chapter 11, verse number 4, uh, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Why? Well, there's two things here. The 
first of them is the practical need for having a structure that will survive flood. This place is in the floodplain of three rivers. And so that is very important to them. They want the wealth of the rivers because in a desert, water is wealth. But they also recognize that which makes them rich can destroy them. So on a practical level, they want high ground where no flood can destroy them. Secondly, the image of attaining to Godhood. The top of it is in the heavens. Now, every one of their builders know they can't build taller than a mountain. Uh, They know mountains go taller than buildings. There are problems with this. But there's more than just high ground here. There is this almost deification of the human. Almost the first humanism is here. We have grown past our need of God and rescue. This sounds like a very modern state of of thinking. And so they build a city, they build a tower, and they say this, let us make a name for ourselves. And this is their fear, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So their goal is to create something where they rescue themselves They outgrow divine rescue and something where all of the people of the world will see their superiority and see how they are not just another Sam and Sally, not just another Karen and Steve. These are special people, but it's hard to keep unity very long. And the Lord sees and intervenes and uh, their ability to stay on message and stay on task is lost. Why? Because communication is that which defines vision and how we speak clarifies the direction we're going. That's why there's power in your tongue and your faith can manifest uh, your intention and it can unify the sphere of your your world, your influence. And so it is that as they speak differently, they divide and they go all over the face of the earth. Their fear has become prophecy. You might even call this fear as destiny. I I would say to everyone who denies God, your fear will become your destiny because whatever you call yourself, you are at the end of the day mortal and you see your end coming. Your fear becomes your destiny. Or we could say it differently, referring to this city of Babel. Unity is rare. (laughs) Unity is hard to keep. But when you've got it, you're capable of great things. And once you lose it, you just go back to hating and killing each other. That sounds familiar too. Uh, This people has sought to elevate themselves and they have shown the path of the heart. Out of this city, Babel, comes another city that we know of as Babylon. Now, Babel means a noisy confusion and out of that noisy confusion comes Babylon. Uh, This is what arises. Now, how does it happen? This is more than just a story of good and evil. In fact, to try to tell it in terms of good and evil is to risk losing our mission and being trapped in religious vanity. If we define 
people who serve God as good and people who are in the world as evil, we run a risk. And that is, number one, we miss the heart of God. We lose our mission. And secondly, we fall into the snare of Lucifer and we're impressed with ourselves. Both are, that is the spectrum of risk when we define the church as good and the world as bad. Let me give you a more biblical answer than that. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just the world, all of us in the church too. The world needs mercy, we need mercy. The world needs repentance, we need repentance. It's not as simple as good as an evil. In fact, there is only one who is good and by his mercy we have been covered and brought into fellowship with God. I want you to see this. This is important. It's not easy. It's not, it's not fair, I should say, to simply look at Babylon as evil and look at Daniel and uh, his, uh, other, uh, his, uh, the other Jews there as, as good. Um, Babylon is, of course, a city that uh, will rise to historic importance, uh, but it's built upon something, and it's built upon an idea. I placed in your notes, if you download them from the website, I placed a a good summation of the history of the kingdom, the city of Babylon. Um, it was, uh, it came to preeminence by overthrowing the Assyrians whose capital city was Nineveh. And the Assyrians were the rulers of the region. And uh, the Bible tells this story and it is prophesied and then spoken about afterwards how the Chaldeans, that's another name for the Babylonian empire, overthrew the city of Nineveh. Uh, and they overthrew the Assyrian empire and they rose to preeminence. And they began to expand their kingdom and their power. They went as far north as the Caucasus and a modern-day Turkey. They went as far south as the borders of Egypt, and they swept all through the Holy Land. Uh, the Lord was not surprised by the rise of Babylon. The Lord, through the prophets, you can read their words in the Old Testament, the prophets said it was going to happen. And when the kings of Israel were tempted to rebel, the prophets, you can read the story, told them not to, the prophets explained that uh, the Babylon was rising and it wasn't the job of the Israelites to resist, but to work with them. But they did not listen to the prophets. And the first king rebels, you can read it in the story of Jeremiah. Uh, the first king rebels against Jeremiah's advice and prophecy, and uh, they are uh, beaten in battle and some of the citizens are carried off. Then the next regent placed in, in power of the Holy Land by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he rebels too, again, against the prophets, and he too is defeated. But this time, when Nebuchadnezzar brings his army, he destroys the city of Jerusalem, he tears down the walls, he destroys the temple, takes all of the artifacts of gold and silver, all of the objects of worship out of the temple, and takes all of the house of Israel as refugees uh, to Babylon to integrate them in the culture. It was more than oppression. It was also human resources because uh, like 
most great, like most great empires, they understood that the talent of the people are the real wealth of the nation. And so they took the best and the brightest. This included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and others. And they brought them into the kingdom because they saw their abilities and they wanted to take advantage. You see, it's complicated. You can't just say, here's good and here's bad. Uh, there's a complicated story here. You can't even blame Babylon for destroying Jerusalem because the scripture says that God had raised them up to do so. Do you see? This is the point of the prophets. This is the point of the prophecy. And so here you have young men and young women. Uh, You can read the story of Esther. Um, So much of the story of the house of Israel is formed by this years of exile. And so you can see how they are called to be in a kingdom, but not of a kingdom. They are in Babylon. They have Babylonian names. They have a kingdom they have to excel in, but they are committed to Yahweh. They are people of the book. They are people of the monotheism they have inherited from their parents. And the interesting thing here is that to look at Babylon and just say, oh, it's witchcraft is to misunderstand. To look at Babylon and just say, oh, it's idolatry. That is to, that is to err by oversimplifying. But here is the fundamental essence of Babylon in a nutshell. And this is not my opinion. It's not my interpretation. This is Isaiah speaking to the Babylonian empire and saying, listen to this. I'm reading Isaiah 47, verse number eight. Listen to this. You pleasure-loving kingdom, living at ease and secure. You say, I am the only one and there is no other. I am the only one and there is no other. You say to yourself, I will never be a widow or lose my children. Well, both these things will come upon you in a moment, widowhood and the loss of your children. Yes, these calamities will come upon you despite all your witchcraft and magic You felt secure in your wickedness. No one sees me, you said, but your wisdom and your knowledge have led you astray. And you said, I am the only one and there is no other. See this, because this all is going to apply to us. The motto of Babylon is this, I am and there is none beside me. Isaiah repeats it twice. The motto, the motto of sinful flesh is not, I, is not, I'm just going to choose the devil's way. It's not, I'm going to serve hell. That's not the path of deception. Choosing witchcraft is a rarity usually only done by mentally damaged people. That's not the path of destruction. It's not saying every morning, I'm going to live bad. It's saying every morning, I am and there. There is none beside me. It is the elevation of self, and it is the subjugation of God. It is the elevation of self, and it is the abandonment of God. It is to make God of no importance, and what you do in Babylon, in your confusion, and in your many voices of a noisy confusion, is to elevate yourself. Not even Satan tries to get you to worship Satan. He met with Eve, and he 
he said, look, you know, all this is just to keep you down. God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because then you'll be like God. He doesn't say join my team. He says serve yourself. This is the path of wickedness. Out of this will come witchcraft, yes. Out of this will come spiritual rebellion and all manner of spiritual ugliness, yes. Out of this will come idolatry, yes. Out of this will come murder and rage and hatred and all of that, yes. But it all started not with joining hell's team. It all started with I am and there is none beside me. Now watch what's going to happen here. These young men and women are called to bear the name of God in a society that wants to elevate and glorify the self. Their job is not a responsibility of control. They don't have any control. It's not a role of force. They don't have any force. Their calling, if they choose to receive it and embrace it and claim it, is to place God first in their life and love him with everything they have and while they are doing it to live in a manner where even the heathen say look at the life they live. Look at how they bear the name of their God. How many people would they influence going around saying you're all going to hell you're all lost. That's not what they're called to do. They are ambassadors to their world and they are successful in both worlds this can be so hard for us it can be difficult for us and I'm not unsympathetic to the difficulty that is here I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment let me show you how Daniel influences this king of, of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who has placed himself in the destroying role of trying to worship a mortal being. It is not in the nature of humanity to do well as objects of worship. We self-destruct as objects of worship. It is in our nature to be worshipers. And so this is how Daniel is influencing a king who has misunderstood his role and the purpose of his place and creation. And so this is Daniel chapter number four, verse number 34. He is bearing witness to Nebuchadnezzar, writing down Nebuchadnezzar's words. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned. What had happened to Nebuchadnezzar? As objects of worship, we fall apart. Uh, This is true when you look even at our generation. Look at people who have received the most worship of any living person. I would suggest the people who receive more worship than any other category of person or any role would be uh, a musician Uh, who can use the power of music to take a whole group of people to the same place at the same time. And if you see a concert of these people, you will see thousands of people who aren't just enjoying music. No, it's much past that. Go to a concert. They are worshiping. But this destroys the person who stands in that place because they know deep down they are mortal and they are weak and they don't know what is what either. 
And I believe, and this is my opinion, I don't try to put it on anyone. I believe that is why uh, depression, uh, suicide, uh, drug addiction is so common among people who become objects of worship. To stand in that role is to have life itself mock you because you've placed yourself in a, a place of worship and you don't even know what time it is. And so here is Nebuchadnezzar driven to an insanity of proclaiming himself a God. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar. Look at any history where people are named God and you will find the same story of mental breakdown, whether it's the Pharaohs of Egypt, whether it is the, uh, the, the Caesars of Rome, whether it is the kings of history. Anytime you find people who place themselves in a deified role, you find psychic destruction and mental breakdown. And so I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who, what, lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar has reestablished order. He is no longer seeing himself as the ultimate good. That breaks his own psych- his psychology. He does not see himself as the best of the best and the highest ideal to which the human heart and the created abilities of our intellect can reach because that is what God must represent for us. God must be uh, the highest of the high, the most beautiful of that which is beauty. He must represent all that is good and we must. Am I having mic problems? You want me to switch mics? Okay. He must in his own way pursue that just as as you and I must pursue it to do anything less is to create a broken human condition. He places God back on the throne. And this is what he says about God. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. What does he say? All the people of the world are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even a greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven, all his acts are just. Can I have a big amen? All his acts are true. Can I have a big amen? This is what Nebuchadnezzar learned. God is able to humble the proud. His path back to sanity is going to be built upon order. He cannot daily face his own limitations without suffering a psychological terror and breakdown. He must have something above him to which he pursues and he seeks and yes, he worships. His path back 
is grounded in not duty. It's not that the prophet convinces him it's time to repent, although it is always time to repent. That's not his path back. His path back is not performance, finally doing something good enough. It's not even obedience, not even righteousness. It's difficult to say that this king would attain unto righteousness. His path back is identity. God is on hev- in heaven and we are on earth. And here's Daniel bearing the name of God. In a noisy confusion, here is Daniel living as spiritual exile in a kingdom. This role is so hard for us. Um, Let me just confess, as a pastor, this balance of being in the world but not of the world is so, I understand the tension. Uh, We have personality types among us that fear the church changes too much to be like the world if we tolerate the world. And I understand that fear because we must influence them more than they ever influence us. Can I have an amen? We must be people of God. I understand that. But if we only arrange ourselves where we police everyone to a place of appropriate reassurance for the fearful types among us, we will have no one who comes. And so it won't matter if we're pure, if we have no mission. We are always wrestling between this tension of uh, we are in this world and not accidentally, but God placed us here. And then God asked us to manifest his heart to this world all the while keeping our devotion and our consecration 100% toward God. And we live in this tension where we're pulled here and we're pulled here and we hang between two worlds And although we groan with the tension of it, and we might even crave a day when the spiritual tension is relieved, we hold our hands on this reality, and we hold our hands on this reality, and over the bridge of our testimony and witness, the ministering spirits of the Lord move from the glories of heaven to the needs of earth. You are God's ladders to your world and you must be a person of faith a person of dignity in Babylon in a noisy confusion you must carry and bear the name of God in Babylon and this is difficult because we fall into habits of trying to reconcile the tension and we see here the misconceptions of the righteous in Babylon you see Uh, The role is difficult. We understand who we are because we've placed God on the throne. And we understand who God is or we wouldn't be people of faith. What's hard is why are we in Babylon? We struggle with is Babylon our enemy? What is our role here? Is the answer to reject it and to hide in cloisters? To hide in monasteries is the answer to keep it as enemy, to make ourselves 
uh, identity stronger and stronger and reject them? What is the role of Babylon? Well, let me try to explain some things here. It's easy to see Babylon as the enemy. After all, they destroyed the temple. Uh, But it's more complicated than that because uh, they also will rebuild the temple. Um, It is Nebuchadnezzar who destroys the temple. That's the first king Daniel serves under. But it's Cyrus, the last king he serves under, who will rebuild it. Yes, the 5,000 artifacts, including all of the gold and silver dishes and pans and bowls that are a part of the worship, all of those are returned to the temple by Cyrus. Yes, his great-grandfather or whatever had taken them 70 years earlier, but Cyrus returns them. Cyrus even finances the whole project to send people back and rebuild the city and rebuild the tabernacle. He gives them everything they have. You can read it, that first chapter of Ezra. He gives them everything, including the bulls they sacrifice and the rams and the lambs, the wheat, the oil, the wine to sustain them. He pays finances, the expedition. Yes, Babylon destroyed it, but in Babylon, God has given a certain group of people favor, and they have influenced Babylon, and Babylon has begun to value, not just with their lips, but putting their wallet into it. Babylon has begun to think maybe there's some value in these strange people of the book that have their own ways of doing everything. Maybe we should let them have some influence around here. And Babylon is a strange story because Babylon is really not about evil, although a lot of evil is done. It's not even about witchcraft, although a lot of witchcraft is done. Babylon ultimately is the religion of I am, and there is none beside me. Babylon is just the elevation of self, and we all of us live in a world. It's not that they're evil. They're just interested in what they're interested in. We all have the capacity for evil. It's not that they're bad. We're all capable of bad. It's just they are serving the self and trying to perhaps add God to it. So Babylon is not our enemy. It becomes the place where we bear the name of God as testimony to the nature and the heart of God. The first conception of Babylon is that it is our enemy. It's more complicated than that. Uh, We are here, uh, yes, and we are held here, yes, but uh, they didn't trap God when they destroyed the temple. God has allowed us to be here for a purpose. The second misconception, Babylon represents evil and sin, and we are the good people and they're the bad people. Again, this is an error. Babylon is just about worship of the self, and Daniel and the Hebrew children are there to bear witness and carry the name of God. Now, let me pause here. I'm, 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 I'm almost done-ish. But I have a few things I want to I say here. This is really hard for Christian parents. Because we're trying to raise children who will be in this world, successful in this world, but have their hearts in another world. Now, this is hard. Because we struggle 
with where, how much do we protect them and how much do we prepare them. And some of us, because of our personality types, we err on the side of protection and some of us err on the side of preparation. We're preparing them. But we wrestle with this. this, this. And if we simply make an enemy of the world, then we raise children who are tribal to their core and struggle with mission. As long as they're stuck in a safe place, that's enough for them. If we prepare them too much, we risk putting them out before they're ready and the world influences them more than they influence the world. And if any of you think this is an easy needle to thread, you are smoking crack. This is hard. (laughs) This is not just hard, this is stinking hard. And parents agonize over it. And no matter what you do, you'll fear you did the wrong thing. I've asked some of our young adults to help us. Um, I I needed, I had 10 of you who are going to come up here real quick. Can y'all run up here real fast, real fast, real fast, faster than that? Okay, so I want to show you a lesson here today, and I want to make this emotional. I don't want to make this data. I want this to make make this emotional. We have 10 here. Do we have 10? Let someone do a head count for me real quick. We have 10. Uh, It looks like we have 10. We need 10. All right, I need one more over here. That's right. Come over here. All right, so five and five. Um, uh, we're going to represent, that's right, good job, thank you. All these good-looking people up here, man, if I had abs like them, I'd have it made. <laughs> anyway, moving along. Um, so, um, church kids, they represent church kids. How many of our church kids do you think are going to choose to serve God as adults? How many do you think? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, this is a difficult th- needle for the Christian parent to thread. We wrestle, we wrestle with this very, very much. Um, how many of them? Now, we have data on this. We know exactly how this works out. Now, it's not just our local church. Um, it's, it's just in churches, churches abroad. But I, I want you to see this. These are all good church kids. They come to church. They sit on the church pew. They listen to their mom and dad raise their hands and praise the Lord. And uh, how many of them are going to choose to serve God as adults? Let's have our outer one on each end go sit down. The last out one, that's right, y'all go sit down. So we lost, we lost two of them. And we bring our kids to church and we pray and we say, God, we gotta, we've gotta, we gotta reach the world, we've gotta reach our kids, we've gotta get this right. How many of them are going to choose to be adult, Christian adults? How many of these are going to choose? The next, next one's on each one. You can go sit down now. Go sit down. We had all these beautiful kids. We've lost 40% of them. How many of them are going to choose to serve God as adults? I mean, in the tough years when they're in college and they're trying to figure out who they are and they're trying to know what they're going to do as a living and they have go through breaks up, breakups. If you don't think a breakup's hard, it's been a long time since you've been through a breakup. And you don't know who you are. And if you have any value, am I going to serve God as an adult? I don't know. How many of them are going to make it? This ought to matter to you. Next two, go sit down. How many of our kids are going to make it? And we bring them to church and we pray. We hope they get a love for the things of God. How many of them are going to make it? Next two can go sit down. This is how many are going to make it. Not this church. We've done better than this. But we don't have any room to brag because in this kingdom, our God's not happy if we have a 99% success ratio. 
success ratio. He will send us looking for the one lost sheep. Thank you, guys. You can go sit down now. Did you feel that? That's how many is going to make it, statistically. I do a lot as a pastor to make our church as cool as possible to young people. And I know some of you older people don't like it, but I'm not worried about you. Statistically, you've already decided. I know some of you don't like the lights. You don't like the screens. I know. I know. I hear you. I do. I've heard it all from it doesn't feel like church to it looks like a club. I've heard it all. The lights are not to be cool. The lights are to create a good video. You have to lower the lights to create contrast. And we try to take care of the people who are watching online. That, that's a different issue. But I, I will confess to all you out there in internet land, as a church, I don't worry about my parents. They've already made up their mind. But I will always err on the side of trying to make this church as cool. Condemn me. I don't mind. God bless you. You poor darling. I'm not happy when 80% of kids who grow up in the church feel like they just don't have any connection there anymore. We have parents, listen to me, we have to teach our kids how to be successful as people of faith and also successful in Babylon. Because just as... Daniel and the Hebrew children were, had two names. They were known in the Hebrews and they were known in the Babylonians. And just as they were successful to hold on to their faith, and they also were successful in their world, our kids have to do the same thing. Our young people have to do the same thing. And you know what? I know, I know you'll hear about what the single group department did. And I know you'll hear about, but let me tell you what. We are taking these kids and we are raising them in Babylon. But we're holding their hearts in our hands. And we're saying, yes, you're in Babylon, but don't give your heart to Babylon. We're saying, yes, you're in a crazy time in a strange generation, but don't give your heart to Babylon. You were called to bear the name of God in a culture of self. You were called to bear the name of God in a culture of the elevation and the worship of self. And you were called to say, that's going to make you crazy. You need to put God on the throne of your life. It's going to drive you crazy serving yourself. You ought to serve God. Yes, Babylon, musicians, you can come. Yes, Babylon represents the worship of self. Uh, but Babylon is our harvest field. And Daniel and the Hebrew children did more than barely make it in Babylon. Is anybody listening to me? If they had barely made it, they would have had no influence on the kingdom. They were successful in Babylon and never sold their heart to a Babylonian deity. They were successful and thus they had influence. 
Heights. I hope our church can take the wonderful, amazing young people that God has put in our hand and we can prep them, not just to stay, you know, hold on to the end. No, that's not enough. We are called to be workers in a harvest. How do we work? We don't have control. They didn't either. We're not in charge. They weren't either. We simply are the bearers of the name of God in a culture that is fixated on the worship of self. Do you see? And so they bear the name of God. And yes, this tension is real. And Christian parents wrestle with it. And we raise our children in spiritual tension. Uh, They're here, but they're not here. And we worry with what we make them to do. Are we erring on the side of protecting them? Or are we erring on the side of preparing them? We wrestle with it. Yes, 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 yes. But God has placed us, you, here in this generation. And he's given, your name, given you his name. And he said, you carry my name in Babylon. In the same manner, Babylon of old was a confusion of voices. We live in a confusion of voices. We just call it the internet. We live in a confusion of voices. We just call it politics. We live in a confusion of voices. We just call it civil justice. We live in a confusion of voices. We just call it hobbies and sports and everything. Everybody, you should be a good citizen. You should represent. You should do all those good citizenship things. But we are called to be in this world, but our heart is betrothed to another world. That doesn't mean we're hiding here. It means we are bearing the face, the image, the name of God. You are in this kingdom, but you're not of this kingdom. You will succeed here, yes. You will be a blessing here, yes, Daniel. You will influence these people, yes, Daniel. But you're called to bear the name of God. Shadrach, you will be a witness here. You will be successful here. You will have influence here, but you will bear the name of God. Remember, Babylon is not your kingdom. Let me, I have so much I could, so many places to go here. This story is threaded through endlessly with the depth of this. This puts every story we celebrate in a different light. Why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down to a king and they risk fire because their heart is to another kingdom. They are perfectly willing to be a part unless they must give up their allegiance and then their devotion becomes testimony. That is what we do. This is Daniel. He has influence. He's a man of importance. And they, they, they try to trap him. His enemies do. And they, they know he prays. Why? He's a man of influence. They know people notice. Why? He's a man of influence. And they say, we'll trap him. And so they do. And at 80 years old, Daniel thrown into a lion's den. And his own king regrets this. He's like, they trapped us in a legal trick. Um, once this is over, I'm going to take care of business. But right now, it may be that your God will protect you, Daniel. And Daniel's... He's good with it. He's lived his whole life, but he's never sold his heart. You see? And he will not give up his mission to have influence. He holds to his mission, but neither does he make enemies. Neither does he try in some way to deny them or reject the world he's in. He's successful and he uses it to bear the name of God. There's so much here. And so I had these kids came come up here kids young our young adults here helped me they came up stood across the front here and i showed you how we got from 
all of them to 20% of them because that's what we did. 80% of them went and sat down. Um, interesting research has been done on the kids who make it, who serve God. You see all these young people who were up here? They are the kids who make it. They're serving God as a single young adult. You see, that's important. We might could learn something from those who are still here. And so the researchers did, and they interviewed hundreds of these kids who have stayed in the church through the confusing years. And they found five things. And at first, they didn't know how to write them down because all the young people were using their own language, and they began to figure out how to organize and what they were saying. But there were five things. And this is such good advice. I don't want to just say it to young people. I want to say it to our young people, but I want to say it to all of you because this is some of the best spiritual advice uh, I think uh, you will, you can build a, uh, build a future upon. The first thing that they said was this. These are young people talking. You have to build your own relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not enough for you to have family or friends you have to build your own relationship with Jesus Christ. They all said they experienced a sense of spiritual intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, they lived out cultural discernment. That was the words the researchers used. But what they're talking about is going to church with people who aren't like you, who think differently than you, who have a different background than you, maybe have different ways of doing everything than you, and you are reconciled to them. You see their offering to the Lord and you value it even though they're not like you. Churches that don't do that have very low rates of young people making it. Isn't that tragic? I love that. So number two, I'm going to call it this. Be reconciled one to another. Don't just love God and argue with others. Love God and love people. (laughs) I know God's easier to love than people. I get it. But love people and be reconciled to people. So first, they had a real relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship. Secondly, they reconciled with neighbors. They practiced cultural discernment. Number three. They had meaningful spiritual relationships with people in the church, not just their parents. So let me say it this way. Embrace spiritual mentors. Find someone who speaks your language. (laughs) They think like you think. They come from maybe some place, somebody who can be a mentor in your life. Let me appeal to all of you who are today hurting and you're hurting alone. That was not God's plan for how you handle hurt. You should not be hurting alone. Let me say to all of you who are fighting bitterness because of something that happened, if you're fighting bitterness alone, you are not following God's plan for how to deal with bitterness. If you're hiding your wounds, you're not practicing God's plan. Embrace mentors. Embrace spiritual mentors. Open your heart one to another. Uh, Number four, they engage. This is for the research language. I'll explain it. They engage in a counterculture mission. I'll explain that. There are parts about church that if your friends at school found out about, they could make fun of you over. It's 
you become the church kid and they can make fun of you over it and it's not approved of you might be volunteering at a church type event you might be going to a church outreach but anything you do for the church and someone could make fun of you that's counterculture. your culture doesn't approve of you okay understand that but here's the thing the kids who make it had enough grit to stand true to their faith even when their friends might be able to make fun of them. They embrace the counterculture elements. So let me give the advice to everyone. Don't be ashamed of the cross in your life. Carry your Bible to work. Put it on your desk. Tell someone you're going to pray for them. Tell them you're a believer. Carry your cross before them. And lastly, all of them confessed that they had a sense of divine purpose in their life. They said it like this, a sense of calling. And that's the words that the researchers used, a sense of calling, pursuing God's purpose in your life. So first thing, real relationship with God. Secondly, reconcile one to another. Third, embrace mentors. Someone who's ahead of you on the journey. They've learned a few things. They might can help you. Number four, bear reproach with pride. Don't let someone else set your values for you. And finally, believe that God has calling in your life. I want to say to all of you this truth. We are in the here and now, and it's not an accident. We are connected spiritually to a higher kingdom. And you are called and I am called to bear witness to our world. Not just that we reject them, not just that we think they're the enemy, but no, we're able to see, we're able to accept and still have our heart 100% devoted to Almighty God. We're able to be in this world, but not of this world. We're able to be successful at work and still carry a Bible. We're able to excel at college and still be a praise a person of praise and worship we're able to have degrees in medicine and still pray for a sick person in faith my sister's son-in-law my cousin-in-law I guess you would call it <laughs> he's a emergency room physician and he told a story in his church in Greensboro a couple Sundays back of how they had a man on the table he's a he's a very talented ER doctor and they couldn't bring him back and he said I just kept working on him I kept working on him and I'm just praying or just low under my breath while I'm working on him and after like you'd have to hear the story uh, it's an amazing story this guy they, they everyone else are ready to call a code and they're like looking at him or not a code but pronounce him dead and he's still working and praying and working and praying now that's a good believer right there Working and praying, working and praying. And the guy just comes back right there on the, on the table. And uh, he told the testimony of it. We can have a medical degree and be excellent at what we do. And still look at somebody and say, I'm praying for you. You see, it's not enough for us to just reject Babylon and say, well, we're just going to... No, you excel in Babylon while your heart worships the God of your salvation. You bear his name and you change your world in testimony. Stand with me all across the house. We're going to create a moment, a block of time right now where I want you to focus your heart and your mind. And I want you to recommit yourself to bearing the name of the Lord in your world. 
our worship team will begin to lead us in the worship and all that's fine. But right now, I want to create a solemn space. This is our version of a, a solemn space, okay? And I want you right now to focus your mind. Close your eyes if that helps. Lift your hands if that helps. And I want all across this house, I want to hear you recommit yourself to God to bear his name in your world. Lord Jesus, I don't want to just be able to bear your name in a religious setting that doesn't influence this society. But I want to bear your name outside of a religious setting, Lord. I want... I want, to, I want to bear your name to people who are hurting, and I want to be able to say that you're a life changer. I want to say you're a way maker. I want to say you're the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Lord, we as a church, we live in this dynamic spiritual tension of being in the world, but we're connected to another world, and we have to hold both realities in our hands, and we have to bridge them spiritually for all who would come into your presence. Lord Jesus, help us to get that balance right. I pray for all of our parents here today, in Jesus' name, that you would be with them and you would put your anointing upon them, you would put your strength upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to pray for all of our parents here today who are seeking wisdom to bridge this gap in your life to be this spiritual bridge. I want to pray for you right now. Uh, ordinarily, I'd have you all come down to the front, but that's we're not doing that right now, at least not as much. We're doing it some, but not as much. But I want to pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for every one of our parents here at First Church. Lord, they are, they are truly on a, a, a rack of sorts, a spiritual rack of sorts that's pulling them in two directions. On one hand, they have the world. On the other hand, they have the kingdom of God. And they literally have to teach children how to live in both worlds and how to bear your name in both worlds. It's easy to bear your name at church, God, but we've got to raise kids that know how to bear your name at school. They know how to bear your name at college and university. They know how to bear your name in career. Lord Jesus, I'm praying today praying today, oh God, that you would give us insight and wisdom, give us patience to listen to them, to hear how they think, and give us the tenderness to guide them, not demand obedience, because that's, that's not the path to spiritual life, but to invite them and implore them to see the beauty of the Lord and dedicate themselves to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Those of you who would like to step forward, we are doing some prayer. Our ministry team will be down here. If you'd like to, if you'd like to step forward, and uh, they'll appropriately pray for you and, and, and have prayer because of a, a need in your life. We are doing that, and we make space for that. Um, if you need to go, you can begin dismissing yourselves. We love you. We, 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 we want God's best for you. Have a great week. But there's just a touch of the Spirit here right now. So I, wanna, I want us to be at ease and, and calm with just letting the Spirit move among us here for a few moments as we stand together in the presence of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we're calling upon you today to pray that God would open doors of influence in this world in a manner where you commit it to the purpose of bearing his name. So I love to see people like Daniel and the rest of the people that are in these stories 
they, they can live in the tension of it. And they can bear the name of God and they can be influential and successful in their world. But what we need to do is seek God first, you see. And then this other stuff happens. That's the order. That's the order that we talked about Nebuchadnezzar failed to see. You, 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 it's God first and then everything else. So I want to do something. I wasn't going to do this, but now I'm going to do it. So here we go. I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless you specifically. Bless you in a way that when you live bearing his name, you succeed in manifesting the kingdom of God here in the world we live in. Does that make sense? Lord, I'm praying right now that the advancement and the favor that you place upon your people is not simply so we might have more. We are all of us blessed beyond measure in any rational comparison to so much of the world. It's not, it can't simply be more about us or we fall into the trap of we are about elevation, elevating the self. Lord Jesus, would you open the doors to your people, whether it's career, whether it's opportunities with business, um, whatever, whatever the individual that is serving you is doing, our young people who are going through school, going to college, Lord, would you give them blessing and favor, but not just for the exaltation of self. Would you do it in a way to highlight the bearer of your name? that they would have that influence, that they could lead people to a healthy place of worship, repentance, submission, and serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Somebody say, I receive it. We receive it today, Lord Jesus. We receive it today, Lord Jesus, according to your will, according to your power. We receive it today, Lord Jesus. Let your work be done through your people. In Jesus' name I pray. To our young, to all of you parents, uh, I, I let your mouth be a word of encouragement to our, our young people. Let your words be uh, spoken words of faith to our young adults, to our single adults. Let your testimony of them be, God is with you and God has a purpose for you. Is there any way I can help you? Amen. One more time, let's worship the Lord in this house. We bless your name, oh God. We thank you for your goodness. Exalt you, O God, in this house with your power and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. For this church, for people who are mighty in faith. In Jesus' name. God bless you. We love you all. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.